Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As I uh, reflect on this passage and I think about the 500th anniversary this year of the Reformation, a conversation comes to mind for me, a memory of a a talk that I had uh, probably 15 years ago as I was teaching a Bible study on the book of Romans. And because I always, I never liked Bible studies, I never liked Sunday school, but what what I did actually was uh, I remembered a book I'd had to read in college called The Chosen by Potok. There was a scene there where these young uh, Jewish students at the yeshiva, they basically read the Bible and then they got to stump the rabbi with their hard questions. And, and I thought, that, that sounds perfect to me. I'd love to read the Bible and then try to trick the teacher with uh, asking hard questions. And so I thought, why don't we do that? And so we started going line by line through the epistles of Paul. And we got to, I believe it was the book of Romans, and immediately started running into trouble because Paul, in the book of Romans, as, as in many other places, sounds kind of reformed. And if you're teaching a Bible study at a church that isn't, that can create problems. I remember one of my students coming to me outraged after a Bible study and saying, I just do not believe, I can never believe that God would choose some people and not others. It's, it's not fair. I said, I hear you, but uh, there's a book I think you should read. I'd like you to read this book. He's like, oh, I, I bet there's a book. Was it written by John Calvin? I said, no, it was written by Moses and the prophets. It's called the Old Testament. Because when we look at the Old Testament, it is hard to maintain an idea of a God who would never dare choose some. Because in the Old Testament, God reveals Himself in precisely that way. And the language that Paul uses here in our text is language that is inspired by and in some cases borrowed from the Old Testament. I hope by now, as we look at, at Paul, it's, uh, Peter, it's clear that a lot of what he writes is, is just shamelessly stolen from the Old Testament. Christianity is not a newly invented religion. Instead, it's steeped in God's revelation in the Old Testament. And, and this text is no exception. You are a chosen race. Peter writes, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Election, the doctrine of election. We often say, we think of the Reformation, Martin Luther invented or discovered, depending on your persuasion, the doctrine of justification by faith. And then Calvin, with his pointy beard, came along and invented or discovered 
the doctrine of election and predestination. And yet, election comes straight out of the Old Testament. The concept of being chosen wasn't invented in the Reformation or even discovered in the Reformation. It had always been there from the very beginning in the Old Testament and in the New. And Peter, in speaking to the church, in speaking to us, the elect exiles that he's been addressing all along, he, he uses four names. He says you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And all of these ways of speaking to a people are derived from the Old Testament. A chosen race, he says. In the Greek, that's a, a genus eclecton. Genus, uh, like genus, genocide. We talk about the extermination of a race. It's the same word, genus, that's being used here. You are a race that has been chosen, eclecton, elect where we get our word elect, a chosen race. But he's not just discovering this. He probably has in mind Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. A chosen race. A chosen people. A royal priesthood, he says. In the book of Exodus, this is in chapter 19, the people of Israel are described as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's interesting, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, this idea is echoed once again, connecting those Old Testament words to the New Testament church. In Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, you read, To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the connection is really clear. The same language that's being used of the people of Israel in the Old Testament is being used of the people of Israel spiritually, the church, in the New Testament. Peter says, You are a holy nation. And ethnos, Hagion. Hagion is holy, so uh, the Church of Holy Wisdom in uh, Istanbul, before it became a mosque and then a museum, was the Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom. A holy ethnos, ethnicity. A holy nation. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, again, the people of Israel are described as a people holy to the Lord your God. A people holy to the Lord your God. That same verse goes on to say His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. As Peter says, you are a people for His own possession. It's all there. The way that God describes His people in the Old Testament, the same terms are applied to His people in the New Testament. People are constantly saying, that God would never do things that God Himself claims to do constantly throughout His Word. How is it possible to find ourselves in that situation where we're so convinced that God must be this way, even though God says, actually, the way that we convince ourselves is we don't pay attention to what He says He is and what He says He does. In other words, we lose touch with what He's revealed in His Word. 
we ignore what he's written about himself, or we rationalize it in such a way that what he said doesn't mean what it seems to mean. In some cases, it means just the opposite. God's just tricky that way. He's constantly saying that he has chosen us as a people when what he means is he hasn't. I think this is especially the case when it comes to our relationship to the Old Testament. I think Christians of every stripe, Reformed and not, no matter what you believe, Christians are often in danger of neglecting the Old Testament. Of not understanding exactly uh, what the relationship between old and new is. We tend to think of the Old Testament as something that has been fulfilled, something that is now defunct, something that is of interest for historical reasons perhaps, but no more. But for New Testament authors, for the apostles, like there is no New Testament without the Old. It's, it's the, the air that they breathe. Right? The case that they make, the arguments that they make are grounded, rooted deeply in the testimony of the Old Testament. And where we see a big disconnect between Old and New, between Israel and the church, they see continuity. They see continuity, consistency. The continuity between the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament spiritual Israel, the church, these continuities are really striking when you think about it. I mean, think about the Old Testament nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, God creates a people for himself, and he does it through a covenant. The way God creates a people is he enters into a covenant with them. He makes a promise to them. And when God makes promises... Those promises are accompanied by signs. He seals the promise with a sign. And in the Old Testament, you see a variety of those signs sealing the promise that he's made to his people. Uh, You might think, for example, obviously circumcision is one of those signs. But the Passover is another one of those signs as well. If you think of circumcision, that's a sign of initiation, entering into the covenant community. Whereas the Passover is more like a, a, a sign of abiding, continuing in the promise. But the signs represent the promise. They signify the promise to people. Now, people who enter into the community of promise in the Old Testament, either by birth or by choice, by conversion, they inherit the promise that was made. But they inherit the same promise that was made generations before, and they also receive the signs that seal that promise. So in the Old Testament, if you become one of the people of Israel, you become an inheritor of the promise made to Abraham. Even though God didn't make that covenant with you personally, he's now made it with you by virtue of the fact that you're part of that community and you receive the signs of that community. And yet, not everyone who receives the signs truly belongs to the people of God. Right? The Old Testament is really, in a big way, like the, the, the history of an apostate church. There are plenty of people who are circumcised in the flesh, but not, to borrow a, a term from Paul, circumcised in the heart. So they chase after false idols. They raise high places to false gods in the midst of Israel. This promised land, it's probably true perhaps even in most, most parts of the history of Israel, that other gods were worshipped by more people than the true God of Israel. 
constantly this false worship, this apostasy, is everywhere, is rife. The community of promise, the covenant community, contained people who worshipped other gods, who scoffed at the promise that they had inherited, just as the church does now. We certainly make no claims that those who enter into the community and receive the, the signs that seal those promises will truly be converted, circumcised in their hearts. We see that, that mixture, that mixture of, of wheat and chaff, as the New Testament says. And yet those who worship the true God, those who were obedient, those who were righteous, could not brag. Even in the Old Testament, you couldn't go around talking about your goodness and your, how much you deserve what you had received. Even there, it was understood that this was a gift of God. A gift of God. As we describe this Old Testament covenant community, the points of contact with this covenant community should be obvious because it is the same covenant community. The administration has changed. The circumstances have changed. The extent of revelation that we have has changed. Things have gotten better and better and better. And yet, they're not part of a different family than we are. They're part of the same family. Part of the same race. Part of the same priesthood. The same people for His possession. All that is true for them is true for us too. In fact, it becomes more true since the church reflects the fullness of God's revelation. The New Testament authors reveal this. The Reformation rediscovered it. The difference, the, the, the new discovery of the New Testament isn't that there's a different plan than there was in the Old Testament. It's that the plan is better than we thought it was. It's broader than we realized. That's the point, for example, of that wonderful passage in Revelation 5, the hymn to the Lamb that is sung by the people in the presence of God. These are the words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, well, you might have believed from an Old Testament perspective that salvation is ethnic and in order to be saved, you have to be a Jew. It turns out that, that, that ethnically speaking, salvation is much broader than that. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The church is a tribe of tribes, a tribe made up of many tribes. But the song continues. The song says you ransomed all these people for God and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It's clear. There's continuity there between the Old Testament and the New. It's just that things got a whole lot better. What the apostles emphasized and why this is important is that when things got better, when it turned out that Gentiles too were included in this covenant community, it was important for those newcomers to know that even though they were newcomers in a historical sense, they were not second-class citizens. That there wasn't something less secure 
about their salvation compared to the salvation of their Jewish fellow believers. They were not allowed in as a result of some failure in God's plan that necessitated an alternative. Instead, their chosenness went back to the beginning, to the very beginning. That God had known them just as He had known their Jewish fellow believers and loved them before the foundation of the world. This is why this emphasis was necessary. So that all the people brought together by the Lamb of God would know that they had been chosen and loved from the very beginning. There's a value to this doctrine of election, to this idea of chosenness. And I realize like we typically experience it as more of a deficit. Right? It's, it's the sort of thing you're kind of hoping if you're talking to people about Christianity, you're hoping this doesn't come up. Right? Election and predestination, it's an unpopular idea and it's the kind of thing that uh, it's not unusual for churches to, uh, to keep it behind the curtain. You know, it's, it's sort of like, it, we believe it. It's really important, but we don't want to talk about it too soon before you're kind of already in. It's too late to run. And then we'll take you in the back and show you kind of the secret doctrine that, uh, that we really do believe, but we don't want to make a big deal out of. We treat it that way, I think, because we're really aware of the difficulties the philosophical challenges, and we're not very aware of the benefits. We don't really see what the upside is, like why you would want to talk this way. I think one reason why the apostles talk this way is because chosenness or election, it actually restores our sense of the work of the Father and the Spirit in salvation alongside of the work of the Son. Without this we tend to think of salvation solely in terms of the work of the Son, just one person of the Godhead. This forces us to consider the participation of the Father and also the Spirit in salvation as well. Now when you read Peter's words, you read that that second sentence he writes there, you might wonder if Peter's a little confused. Peter says, once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And yet this is the same Peter who earlier in uh, chapter 1, right at the beginning, said that we were elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He echoed Paul's words in Ephesians 1.4, the effect that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you kind of wonder, okay, well, uh, which is it? Which is it? Were we chosen in Him before the foundation of the world? Or were we not a people? Strangers to mercy, and then at some point, because of something that happened in our lives, we became God's people. We were introduced to His mercy. Uh, Which one? And the apostles seemed to believe that the answer was both. That both of those things were true. The Bible presents salvation in terms of both history and eternity. So the same Paul who talks about election before the foundation of the world also writes in the next chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, these words. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not a very charitable way to talk about God's chosen people. 
elect before the foundation of the world, but you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind? It seems like Paul is just as confused as Peter. Because it's got to be one or the other, we tell ourselves. The two things, logically, can't both be so. And yet, Peter and Paul see no contradiction in saying that people who are elect from the standpoint of eternity were at one point in their own personal history children of wrath. They became children of God in history as the Holy Spirit applied the work of Christ to them. We might argue that this seems contradictory. Either you were one of God's chosen people from the beginning, or later on you became one of God's chosen people, but it can't be both. But the apostles just don't see the problem. They see our personal histories as a working out of God's divine plan, so they tend to look at it in the opposite way that, that we do. Like we tend to look and, and, and look to eternity as determining history, whereas they tended to look at history as being explained by eternity. Slightly different. For them, it wasn't an either-or question. It was a both-and kind of question. They understood you came to Christ in history. You believed in him. You chose him. But that didn't happen because you're such a good person. It didn't happen because you're so much smarter than other people, because you make good choices. Instead, they saw that it was the Spirit working in you. It was the Spirit applying the work of the Son. And behind all of this was the work of the Father as well. If the Son accomplishes our salvation and the Spirit applies our salvation, the Father decrees it from before the foundation of the world. He ordains it. He sets it in motion. The plan that that the Son comes to fulfill and the Spirit applies, the plan is the Father's. In other words, the Son and the Spirit, they didn't step in to salvage things when the Father's plan went wrong. When the Father, the Old Testament God, decided, hey, let's do ethnic salvation. I'll choose this this one tribe of people, and those are going to be my people. And then that went terribly wrong, and the Son and the Spirit said, you know, we got to help. This isn't working. He's pretty strict, and, and I think some grace is needed here. Let's see what we can do. That's not what happened at all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all are the authors of our salvation. And this was necessary, right? Because the Gentiles, now in history, being included in the covenant community, needed to know that they too had been known and loved by the Father from the beginning. That the Son had been sent into the world for them too. That the Spirit was working in them just as the Spirit was working in their Jewish fellow believers. This gets a little nerdy, but when we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sometimes we speak ontologically and sometimes we speak economically. Ontologically uh, is a fancy word that just means uh, we're talking about being. Ontology is just the study of being. So when we talk ontologically, we're talking about God as he is, as he exists, that sort of thing. So when we talk about the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in salvation, we're speaking economically. In other words, we're speaking about how they work. So bear with me. Um, It's a little simplistic to say, 
the, the way salvation works is the Father decrees it, the Son accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it. Right? It's actually a little more complex than that, and there's no sense in which we can divide God up in that way. Right? Like the Father's standing over here, well, I decreed it, but now it's up to you. Obviously, like God is involved throughout this work of salvation. But when we think economically, when we think about the particular role that is given to, to each person in the Godhead, I think it's helpful to understand this so that we see that in the central work of redemption, it is deeply Trinitarian. All of, of the, the Trinity is necessary to do the work of salvation as it is described in Scripture. There is no plan of salvation that only includes the work of the Son. It doesn't involve the Father or the Spirit. And I think a lot of times when Christians think about the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the way that we think is, is something like, okay, the Father is the, is the strict one. The Father is, is the, the sort of ornery, rules-based one who thinks you can solve everything by passing a law. And the Son is the sort of easygoing, gracious one, you know, who just wants everything to be smooth and, and happy and loving. And the Spirit is sort of like a power that you can tap into when you're feeling weak, sort of like the force. The Spirit kind of abides in everything, and if you need kind of an extra something, you can tap into the Spirit. But here, and I would argue because of this emphasis on election and predestination, you have to bring Father and Spirit into this central work the Bible speaks of, this work of redemption. It is necessary to see the work of the Father, that ordaining work, as part of the most important thing the Bible speaks of. Just as it's necessary to take the Holy Spirit out of the realm of impersonal power giver and bring him into the realm of, of life giver in the work of salvation. Father and Spirit are not secondary, but necessary. What's it all for, though? This chosenness. What is the point of it all? What is the reason behind this work? Peter says that Jesus calls us out of darkness into the light. Out of darkness into the light. The gospel of Jesus Christ, when you think about it, and as Peter presents it, the gospel is really kind of a twofold, a two-sided gift. Right? The gospel brings us mercy, he says. It used to be that, that we had no mercy and now we have mercy. The gospel also makes us into a people. So two things. It brings us mercy. So Jesus atones for sin at the cross. He pays a just penalty for sin. And without him, there could be no mercy for you. But if that's all the gospel was, if all the gospel was was a statement that Jesus had died on the cross, it wouldn't be enough. Because as you are dead in sin, you lack the power to reach out and grab the cross. As we are as sinners, we can't appropriate for ourselves that work of salvation. Instead, we need the Spirit to give us the power to bring us from darkness to light. In other words, to, to bring us from blindness to sight 
so that we see what's before our eyes. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And we think, well, maybe in a really subtle way. When I look out into the world and, and arguably... I might feel sort of inspired by it all in ways that give me divine thoughts, but, I mean, it's not explicit. There's nothing, like, in the clouds saying glory, hallelujah, to Yahweh. But the Bible actually intends us to see that it's explicit. The creation doesn't subtly declare the glory of God. It's right out there. It's really obvious if you have eyes to see. The question isn't some deficiency in creation. It's a deficiency in us. It's a blindness on our part, an inability to see what stands before us. The Spirit gives us sight so that we can see the summons and answer it. Then the result of that is personal salvation. But the Gospel offers more than just personal salvation. It makes us into a people. God doesn't just save us as individuals. God didn't enter into a billion different covenants with a billion different individuals. He made a covenant with a people. We enter into that people, that community. But what are we God's people for? Peter says we have a purpose, and our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us. The reason for this, the reason that we've been saved, the reason that we've been made into a people is to proclaim His excellencies, to uh, worship Him, to give glory and honor to His name. And and in a really broad and expansive way, not, not in a narrowly conceived way. Yes, we should proclaim His excellencies in our witness. We go out and we, we, we say to someone, yeah, I believe in Christ, here's why. Here's what the Bible teaches That's a way that we proclaim His excellencies. But we also proclaim His excellencies in our worship and all that we do to worship Him. We proclaim His excellencies in our family lives, the way we treat one another, in our friendships, the value that we place in one another, the self-sacrificial love that we show to people who started off as strangers and we've now brought into our hearts. That's a way that we proclaim His excellencies. And we proclaim His excellencies in our work. We've talked about the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in your work, in your calling, in your vocation, the work that you do proclaims His excellencies. And maybe, too, we should uh, contemplate and proclaim not just His excellencies, but how marvelous His light really is. We've been called into His marvelous light, Peter says, suggesting that our calling is not just to communicate, not just to proclaim, but it is also to wonder. To wonder. To contemplate what He's done, His greatness. Just how great His light is. How illuminating it is in contrast to the darkness that we once knew. To plunge ourselves into the wonder of the work that He's done for us, the life-giving work proclaim His excellencies, we have to know them. And to know them, we have to long for them and dream of them and contemplate them and, and wonder about them. The saving work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is marvelous. It's a wonderful thing. 
of such incomprehensible beauty. And we've been called out of darkness in order to see it and to proclaim it and to find our joy in it. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.